when you hear the men tell the story. He said, you know, he looked at us and he said, do you understand what I'm telling you? I, like a lot of other men, are alive today because of Father Capon. He said he gave us everything in that camp to keep us alive. And he said, we're here. And he didn't get to come home. And then he just sobbed. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Hey, everybody. Welcome to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. At the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, an armistice with Germany went into effect, and a four-year war, the Great War, they called it, World War I, came to an end. 16 million people, soldiers and civilians, had died as a direct result of that four-year war. And in the genocides and pandemics that followed, 50 to 100 million more people died. When the war ended, America's veterans, those who had lived, went home. That day, November 11th, became Veterans Day, the day in which we remember the men and women who have served in America's wars. Among those veterans are military chaplains, the non-combatants who face combat with only spiritual weapons, with the full armor of God, with grace, and with courage. This Veterans Day, we thought we'd take a look at the chaplains who serve and have served in the U.S. military. Later in our show, editor Michelle LaRosa will ask what it's like to discern a vocation to become a military chaplain. But first, we want to tell the story of a kid from a small town in Kansas who was a chaplain during World War II and the Korean War. He could one day be named a saint. Our producer, John McKeown, has the story. Emil Capon was born in 1916 in the tiny town of Pilsen, Kansas. Emil Capon, or Capon, uh, depending on where you're from and uh, pronunciation. This is Scott Carter, who coordinates the Father Capon Guild in Wichita. And before we get into the story, let me just pause briefly to mention that the pronunciation of Father Capon's last name is a question of some dispute. Well, actually, probably the real name was Capon. In the Pilsen community, we always knew him as Capon. This is Harry Abina. She runs the Father Capon Museum in his hometown. Over in our community, a lot of the Czech names became more Americanized when they got over here. I grew up here in Wichita, and we say Capon. He probably pronounced it Capon, but sometimes I revert back when I get going. So uh, sorry to confuse everybody. For this story, I'm going to stick with pronouncing it Capon. Anyway, back to Scott. He grew up uh, on a farm, was born in 1916, actually was born on Holy Thursday. His parents were farmers. They uh, were relatively poor. The town of Pilsen is just a small community, and the biggest building in our whole town is the church. He lived about three miles from the church. Uh, The cool thing, though, is you can see the, the church steeple from their property. Pilsen used to have a grocery store. He used to have the post office there. It had, um, you know, a filling station. The church was built. uh, It actually was finished the year before he was born. And so it kind of was from the same time period. And just this beautiful church out in the middle of the plains. Definitely the tallest point on the landscape. And they had daily mass. And so they really felt they had everything they needed right there in Pilsen. 
They actually had their first mass in 1915 in September, and he was born the following April. Emil was a pretty normal kid in many ways. He loved playing outside. He was usually helpful with the family chores. Occasionally got in a little trouble, but for the most part was a good and holy young man. He'd just be praying in the yard, you know, in front of their family altar. Uh, He would take flowers and put them at the statue of the Virgin Mother in church. Um, He always had, you know, was very close to the Lord. And that's one of the things that stood out. His mother said that he was just always had this closeness to God. And that stuck with him his whole life. And so, you know, growing up, he would go actually early before school started uh, and arrive about an hour early so that he could serve mass for his pastor. As he got a little older, Emil would read magazines from the Columban Fathers about the lives of Catholic missionaries in far-flung lands. This got him excited about the idea of being a missionary, but eventually, with the help of his pastor, he decided to pursue parish priesthood. Went off to seminary and I think for the most part, you know, grew in his relationship with the Lord. He was a very ordinary man. He he really enjoyed doing the sports, the intramural sports. He always talked about how, you know, the basketball game went or the football game or something. He just enjoyed the camaraderie and I think the competition of it. After his ordination in 1940, the bishop assigned Father Capon to his home parish in Pilsen, which actually caused a bit of a problem for him. He felt like it was hard to reach some of the people who had been there for a while who had known him since he was younger. Around this same time, World War II was beginning in earnest. A lot of the the families, the, the young men, were volunteering to go to the Army, and there was a request that chaplains were needed, and he volunteered to go. At first, Father Capon's bishop didn't want him to go and told him that he was needed to tend the people of Pilsen. And Father Capon was obedient. But soon after, he wrote to the bishop again, asking to go. Eventually, the bishop relented. He went off to training uh, in Massachusetts at Fort Devens and then uh, was assigned, actually, to Burma and India over in, like, the Chinese theater, which is an area we don't really hear about that much in the Pacific and the war. To be honest, I think most of the fighting was over. It was kind of small patches here and there. But what he had to do is he had to do a lot of traveling to the troops. Uh, they were spread out all the way, you know, throughout the jungle there. And there was a difficult road to, to pass called the Lido Road or the Stillwell Road through the mountains. And it was very dangerous and muddy and all this sort of stuff that the army helped build it. Um, and so he would often, you know, drive over that on a jeep, uh, getting all bumped up, roughed up. He would travel by plane uh, thousands of miles just to visit the troops. It's a lot of travel just for a few troops, but I believe that, you know, a priest who would neglect just the few just because it's hard or difficult would be, you know, neglecting his duty. And so he really felt that call of, I I think, the Good Shepherd to go out and, and seek after the men in need. After the war ended, Father Capon's bishop sent him to Washington, D.C. to get a master's in education at the Catholic University of America. came back, but really just his heart was still with the military. He served for over a year at an army base in Texas, until eventually... He was sent to Japan to be part of the 1st Cavalry Unit, uh, the first part of 1950. 
you know, there were some tensions, I think, over on the Korean Peninsula, which is only about 100 miles away. Um, but it wasn't necessarily anything that you know, they were expecting quite yet. But as time went on, I think he had an inkling that, that they might end up there. Father Capon was among the very first troops to be sent over. Even before he went, I think uh, Father Capon's brother, Eugene, uh, had talked to him. And he said, I just had this sense that he knew that he wasn't going to be coming back. On 20 September, almost three months after the North Korean communists launched their invasion, United Nations troops are in the first stages of their all-out drive toward North Korea. Five days previously, they went from the defensive to the offensive. When U.S. Marines made an... So they actually tried to... were there to try and stem the tide of the North Korean advance down into South Korea. These are Marines and U.S. 7th Division troops advancing into Seoul under enemy fire. Eventually, after the U.S. forces recaptured both Seoul and Pyongyang, they kept on pushing, forcing the North Koreans further and further. Retook Seoul, retook the capital of Pyongyang, and then were pushing up north, uh, really to end the war uh, in uh, November of 1950. Disintegrating communist troops were attempting to flee to the Manchurian border. There was still fighting ahead, but at this time, it appeared that the Korean War was, as General MacArthur phrased it, definitely coming to an end. They had the North Koreans on the run. Unbeknownst to most of the men, and especially the higher-ups in the UN command, uh, the chi China had entered the war with you know, most of its army. And so there were about 20,000 men there waiting for Father Capon's unit of you know, probably 2,000 men. The night of November 1st, All Saints Day, the Americans were ambushed by the Chinese. All of a sudden, you know, the sky lit up and bullets were flying everywhere. He was not afraid to uh, risk his life to be out there with them, to give them the last sacraments, to give, to bring them back to safety, to just even pray with the men out on the foxholes. You know, this is how they, a lot of the men knew him. And so his, his fame had already spread throughout the unit, but it was really that night during the Battle of Unsan that his, his legend really came to life. And he was pulling guys left and right off the battlefield, probably rescued between 30 and 40 men at least, you know, not to mention the others that he prayed with or prayed over. He probably knew that he was going to be captured, and my guess is he knew that there was a good chance that he wouldn't make it out. But I think he just, again, had that heart of, I'm not going to leave my men. I'm just going to trust God. A number of men, including Father Capon, were captured and taken to a prison camp. The communists did everything they could to break the Americans down. It was probably negative 30 to negative 40 degrees that winter. Uh, the, the wind comes through Siberia and down, and just it was the, the coldest winter that Korea had had on record. Uh, they would sleep in these huts on, on mud floors, and they had about 14 men. So, I mean, barely enough room. But in the end, it, it, it helped them in some ways because of the, they were able to share the, the body heat. The Americans only had their summer uniforms with them, 
and many starved to death due to the lack of food. Father Capon going on raiding parties to, to raid the supplies, uh, to scrounge up some extra food. Uh, and the men noticed that man, he always came back with the most food. He was always able to get by the guards the best. And they asked him how he did this. And he said, well, I pray to St. Dismas, the good thief, because I figure, you know, we're in need. God understands. If we're not doing this, we're going to die. So <laughs> might as well ask St. Dismas to help us. And it, it seemed to work. And most importantly, I think, you know, most impressively maybe is that he shared a lot of his own food. The men had dysentery and were often soiling their clothes and it was was dirty and, and gross. He would get up at 5.30 a.m., you know, and again, negative 30, negative 40 degree temperatures, and he would melt some snow. And it was only with clean water that, uh, you know, the men were able to, to keep from sickness and to, to get better when they had the sickness. He had other pans that he would actually wash their clothing in. Beyond the physical and material ways that Father Capon was able to help his fellow men in the camp, many of the POWs credit his hope and his optimism as a big reason they made it through that trying time. When you hear the men tell the story, and when Paul Roach told about Father on Easter Sunday, he started telling how Father stood before him and cried because he couldn't say Mass. And he had not said mass once since he had been taken captive because he had no bread, no wine. And he stood before the men and cried, but then he told them he could tell them the passion of Christ, and he went through the stations of the cross. And when he finished that, he told the men that, you know, it's Easter Sunday, most of the camp doesn't know that. I want you to sing America the Beautiful, and I want you to sing it loud. And the men sang the song. When they finished, Paul Roach said that, Father said, boys, that was beautiful, but it wasn't loud enough. Do it again. And he said this time when they sang, they sang very loud. And when they finished, he said it was so quiet. It was just a moment of dead silence. And then further down the camp, one of the other men picked up the song, America the Beautiful. And he said it so slowly drifted down through that camp, down through Capon's Valley, just one after another repeating that song. And I, then he, he said, you know, he looked at us and he said, do you understand what I'm telling you? I, like a lot of other men, are alive today because of Father Capon. He said he gave us everything in that camp to keep us alive. And he said, we're here, and he didn't get to come home. And then he just sobbed. One of the men said, you know, I never saw him one time in that camp. He wasn't smiling. And they said, believe me, there was nothing to smile about. We were suffering. We were dying. We were starving to death. And it was cold, and we didn't have winter clothing or medicine. And yet he was always smiling. He, he said, we would ask him sometimes, what are you smiling about? And one time he told them, I'm watching that road. One day the Americans will come down and free us. But it just it just always touched you because it went to me, it went back to when he was ordained. He vowed to spend himself for God, to do that cheerfully, no matter in what circumstances he would be placed or how hard a life he'd be asked to live. And he did that in the prison camps of Korea. Suffering from numerous ailments and having been moved to the so-called hospital by the guards, Father Capon died in May 1951, 
after seven months in the camp. At the Father Capon Museum in Pilsen, they have many artifacts from his life, donated by his brother, Eugene. We have a vestment there that his mother did all the crochet work on it. Uh, we have two cabinets filled with his personal belongings, including one of his pocket watches and a pipe, uh, some of his books. And we have his trunk that he took with him over to Japan. And from Japan, everything went in duffel bags to go on to Korea. But when it was sent home to his family, it got lost for two years. And when it finally arrived, they opened it up, and there was a recording of a homily he gave over in Japan. So they got to hear his voice one more time. The peace which God gives to people is different from the peace known by the world. The world regards peace as freedom from suffering, freedom from worry and care, freedom from want, freedom from fighting. In a way, it is a sort of a negative thing. But the peace which God gives is a gift which exists even in suffering, in want, or even in time of war. The saints who were friends of God had peace of conscience even when they were persecuted, even when they had to suffer many outrages, and some of them even had to part with their lives. In his understated Midwestern way, he wrote home saying, this outdoor life is quite a thing. But he had hope, saying, it looks like the war will end soon. This, of course, That's is the Chinese ceremony at the White House, posthumously awarding Father Capon the Medal of Honor in 2013. At night, he slipped into huts to lead prisoners in prayer, saying the rosary, administering the sacraments, offering three simple words, God bless you. One of them later said that with his very presence, he could, just for a moment, turn a mud hut into a cathedral. Father Capon's sainthood cause is underway. The military archdiocese opened it in 1993, and the Diocese of Wichita picked it up in 2008. Obviously, it's easy to focus in on his courage and on his charity uh, in the prison camp and everything. I think one of the things that's good to focus on that we don't think about a whole lot is, is just his hope. That his message was real, his life was really a message of hope to the men that he was with. You know, hope that they'd get through any difficulties. You know, hope in trusting that the Lord was with them, and really the hope for eternal life. Because when he was taken away, the men were putting up a fight. He had been really sick, was starting to get just a little bit better, and they thought that he'd pull through if they kept taking care of him. But the communists they knew would take him away to what they called the hospital, but what the men called the death house because nobody ever came back. And so they were all worried, but Father Capon said, look boys, you know, don't get in trouble on my account. He said, I'm going where I always wanted to go. And when I get there, I'll say a prayer for all of you. And yet even then his faith held firm. I'm going to where I've always wanted to go, he told his brothers. And when I get up there, I'll say a prayer for all of you. And then as he was taken away, he did something remarkable. He blessed the guards. Forgive them, he said, for they know not what they do. And to me, like, that's just, that's powerful. That's a powerful statement. I think, you know, in the face of death, you know, it, it requires hope. It requires a true, you know, belief in 
the afterlife, a true trust in the Lord's goodness and His mercy, His grace, obviously, because we can't earn it. Heaven is our ultimate goal. And also just that the Lord's going to overcome any difficulties we have here. And yeah, you know, maybe there's going to be struggles. Uh, things aren't going to go perfectly um, along the way. But just uh, to have that hope, both for us individually, for the church, for the world, and that, um, you know, God's going to work work things out and he can use everything. Like St. Paul says, uh, you know, all things work for good for those who love God. Blessed are they who suffer persecution for justice sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the early ages of the church, the Christians were given their choice by the officials in the Roman Empire, either of giving up their Christian faith or of being put to death. In recent years, the same thing has happened. Christian people who tried to practice their faith and remain true to it found themselves persecuted and ostracized by people opposed to the Christian faith. We can surely expect that in our own lives there will come a time when we must make a choice between being loyal to the true faith or of giving allegiance to something else. The Father Capon Guild has started a network of fellowship groups called Capon's Men, which seeks to imitate his heroic example through prayer, formation, and discussion. For Wichita area kids who come to Pilsen on field trips, Harriet loves showing them around the museum and teaching them about Pilsen's most famous son. If we can just touch one kid with Father's heart, he was just a farm boy growing up in this community. He had the same temptations they had. He was just a kid like everybody else. He made mistakes too. But look what he did with his life. Right now, everybody's coming to Pilsen to hear the story of Father Capon. But he said, you were all called to be saints. Everyone's called to be a saint. Wouldn't it be wonderful? 20, 30, 40 years down the road, they were coming back to hear about your story. Whatever town or church you're from, they were coming to hear about you because you too followed our Lord. I always thought that was so beautiful. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. After the break, editor Michelle Rosa takes a closer look at what it takes to become a military chaplain. Stay with us. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. On Mondays, we listen to CNA Newsroom. My name is Carl Bunderson. I'm managing editor at Catholic News Agency. If you're listening to this right now, there's a 30% chance you're already subscribed to CNA Newsroom. It's like I have ESPN or something. But if you're not subscribed to CNA Newsroom, you can't sit with us. CNA Newsroom is available on every podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Search for CNA Newsroom and tap the subscribe button. And while you're at it, leave us a rating and a review. We're not like a regular podcast. We're a cool podcast. Now back to the show. There is no priestly ministry where you are closer to your people than in the military. You know, a hospital chaplain is not a patient. A prison chaplain is not a prisoner. And a pastor doesn't actually live and work 24-7 with his parishioners. A military chaplain is with his people all the time. And you do whatever they do except shoot a gun. 
So uh, it is a remarkable type of ministry. I just can't imagine one that is more intense and more rewarding. What does it actually look like to discern becoming a military chaplain? I spoke with Father Aidan Logan, the vocations director for the Archdiocese for the Military Services in the U.S. He told me some of his own story. I went to high school and college seminary. And then uh, after that, I entered uh, religious order, the Cistercians, and uh, was professed a monk there and then studied for the priesthood. My first assignment was for our retreat house, where I gave retreats to priests. And I was very impressed by the military chaplains. And uh, many of them tried to recruit me. And when the first Gulf War came along in 1990-91, I was approached and asked if I would volunteer, and I asked my superiors, and much to my surprise, they said yes. The Archdiocese for the Military Services was created in the 1980s by Pope John Paul II. It serves more than 1.8 million Catholics in the military, VA hospitals, and U.S. government employees outside of the United States. Unlike a typical diocese, the Archdiocese for the Military Services has no parishes and uses chapels that are owned by the U.S. government. Its chaplains are not members of the military archdiocese. They operate on loan from their home diocese, and they are subject to their bishop or religious superior back home. Also, chaplains become commissioned U.S. military officers. This unique setup means that the men who serve as military chaplains have to discern a sort of second vocation within the priesthood. Father Logan experienced that dual vocation himself, serving for 20 years as a chaplain for both the Marine Corps and the Navy. Today, he helps other men discern that dual vocation. I deal with men on active duty in ROTC programs in college, at our military academies, or from military families, or simply laymen who are discerning a vocation to both the priesthood and to military chaplaincy. Father Logan says that while human nature doesn't change, the circumstances surrounding military service create a unique environment for a priest with both opportunities and challenges. The real difference was it was a much younger group. Men and women in the military are somewhere mostly between 18 and 22 and most don't stay beyond their first three to five years. They go back home and uh, marry and have families and so on. Another key characteristic of military chaplaincy is the immediacy of the relationship between the priest and the people he serves. There is no priestly ministry where you are closer to your people than in the military. A military chaplain is with his people all the time, and you do whatever they do except shoot a gun. And many of them have never met a priest before, or even if they're Catholics, have never had any, you know, one-to-one relationship. He's just the guy they see in church on Sunday, you know. So uh, it is a remarkable type of ministry, which uh, I, I just can't imagine one that is more intense and more rewarding. The Archdiocese holds discernment retreats twice a year, once on each coast, and brings in about 20 to 25 men at each retreat. Father Logan also helps men discern with a specific diocese, since the military archdiocese doesn't run its own seminary. 
And if, if someone is from a military family and has moved every two or three years for his entire life, the only diocese he knows is the Archdiocese for the Military Services. So that's where I come in and helping them find a, a home where they will root their priesthood. Because, of course, the military and the chaplaincy is a young man's job, you know. And at a certain point, we all have to retire and go home. There's no such a thing as a freelance priest. You're always part of a diocese or a religious community, and that's an essential part of your vocation is being rooted in that local church. The Archdiocese for the Military Services covers half of the seminary expenses for seminarians planning to serve as chaplains. The diocese agrees that after they have been ordained for three years and have uh, some experience, uh, you know, in the priesthood and in a parish, perhaps, then they come to us for a minimum of five years as a payback. After that, it's between the priest and his bishop. and Some go home and some stay with us for a few more years. In addition to their formation in seminary, military chaplains go through an eight-week officer course. Father Logan says it's not as intense as boot camp. It focuses on how to follow proper procedures regarding uniforms and saluting, how to navigate military bureaucracy, and request a budget for supplies. But Father says the main preparation for military chaplaincy is to be a well-formed priest. The seminarians whom we co-sponsor with their home dioceses are always asking me, what do I need to do to prepare? And I said, you need to be a good priest. That's what the military commissions a chaplain for, just as they commission doctors to be doctors, you know. You're not there to be a soldier or a Marine or a sailor in the sense of combat, but you bring your priesthood to them. And in order to work within the structure of the military and to be able to minister to them, especially in uh, harm's way, you are in uniform and you're part of the structure of the military, but you're there precisely as a priest. Archbishop Timothy Broglio leads the Archdiocese for the Military Services. He spoke to CNA at the U.S. Bishops' Spring Conference earlier this year. He told us that 22% of the total priests ordained in the U.S. this year came from a military background, either from military families or from serving in the military themselves. The Archdiocese's primary focus would be for young people between the ages of 18 and about 38. So we do have the the youngest Archdiocese in, in the world in terms of demographics. Father Logan said he sees several reasons for this phenomenon as well. One is that the priestly vocation and the call to serve the nation have a lot in common on a natural level. It is a life of self-sacrifice, both cases. Also, uh, the majority of the 22% are people who come from military families, and military families are generally larger. It's just part of the military culture. It's very open to life. So that's that's part of it, too. Another factor, he says, is the close relationship that military chaplains can build with the people they serve. The men I speak to in the seminaries, I visit at least 20 seminaries a year in, in the States and in Rome. They all speak of their interaction with a priest. And this brings me back to what I said about military chaplaincy, where you have this immediate interaction with priests on a daily basis in the military that you wouldn't have anywhere else. So I'm sure that has a big effect on it, too. But even with so many priests coming out of the military, 
Archbishop Brolio says many more chaplains are needed to serve the military. We are very shorthanded in terms of uh, in terms of Catholic priests. Uh, I say we have 200 on active duty. Those are supplemented by another perhaps 60 priests who are civilians. Um, but we really should have about 500. So the archdiocese will continue its work to build awareness about the vocation of military chaplain. And it will continue to trust and pray. Jesus tells us if we want workers for the harvest, we have to ask for them. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Michelle LaRosa. That is our show, everybody. On Veterans Day, or even if you're listening after Veterans Day, let's pray for America's veterans. And if you know one, or if you see one in the street, let's thank them for their service to our country. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Joan McKeown. Special thanks this week to all our veterans and our military chaplains. See you next week.